old pilot's plain tales. Airtists. We all have our favourite flying movies, whether it's a black and white classic with biplanes wheeling around the sky flown by actual World War I flying aces, comedy cult movies from which we can quote our favourite lines, surely you don't mean that, or modern thrillers which employ state-of-the-art computer-generated imagery to bring unlikely stunts to life in glorious technicolour. Whether it was John Wayne slapping his captain across the face in The High and the Mighty. Do as I say. Give me a few more minutes. I've already waited too long. Here we go. No, we don't. Get a hold of yourself, you yellow. All the amazing flying scenes in the Blue Max. The Blue Max is more than a medal to you. It's a badge. Something to show. Not as good as winning not just Willie. Many great lines have come out of flying movies. The clipped English of the Battle of Britain. A blue stop on Spitfire! Help yourself, everybody. There's no fighter escort. And, of course, that love-to-hate film Top Gun. Losing control, losing control. I can't, I can't control it. You won't recover. Shit. It's coming up, man. Losing control. This is not good. It's not good. Mayday, mayday. Mav's in trouble. He's in a flat spin. He's heading out to sea. Some were less factual and more tongue-in-cheek, but have nevertheless left lasting memories. Joey, have you ever been in a in a Turkish prison? You'd better tell the captain. We've got to land as soon as we can. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Captain, how soon can you land? I can't tell. You can tell me I'm a doctor. Oh, my God! The automatic pilot! It's deflating! I know, but this guy doing the flying has no airline experience at all. He's a menace to himself and everything else in the air. Yes, birds, too. I won't deceive you, Mr. Stryker. We're running out of time. Surely there must be something you can do. I'm doing everything I can. And stop calling me Shirley. The actors that featured in such famous films helped to make all pilots look a bit more handsome, or most anyway, and we walked a little taller. Clark Gable, Cary Grant, David Niven, John Wayne, Charlton Heston, Gregory Peck, Humphrey Bogart, Robert Taylor, Jimmy Stewart, Steve McQueen, James Earl Jones, George Peppard, Michael Caine, Dean Martin, Robert Redford, Tom Cruise, Mel Gibson, Will Smith, Leonardo DiCaprio, Sean Bean, Hilary Swank, Denzel Washington. They're just a few names to conjure with. Both their names and voices are instantly recognisable and, for many of us, bring back many memories. I hate a man like you so much that I'm going to get your head down in the mud and trample it. I'm going to make you wish you'd never been born. If that's all, sir. I'm just getting started. You're going to stay right here and get a belly full of flying. You're going to make every mission. You're not air exec anymore. You're just an airplane commander. And I want you to paint this name on the nose of your ship. Leper Colony. Because in it, you're going to get every dead beat in the outfit. Every man with a penchant for head colds. 
If there's a bombardier who can't hit his plate with his fork, you get him. If there's a navigator who can't find the men's room, you get him, because you rate him. Well, here we go. Let's see if you can land one of these things by the seat of your pants. <laughs> we're gonna crash. We're gonna be killed. I know we're all gonna be... <laughs> Roger, Lincoln. You've just freed the slaves again. Request PAR approach. You might fly these things, but I take them apart and put them back together again. If you had any guts, we'd be on the runway by now. You felt it vibrating? Another ten seconds, we'd have had structural damage. Who do you think you're talking to? Some kid that fixes bicycles? I know every inch of the 707. Take the wings off this and you could use it as a tank. This plane is built to withstand anything except a bad pilot. Okay, you do it the hard way, but you better get this thing out of here, because I'm not taking off on 2-2. You'll use what's available. Well, if it's 2-2, I'm not using noise abatement, and I'm not cutting back on power over those houses. So unless you want a big, fat bill for cracked plaster and broken dishes, you better move this thing. Keep digging. Another pilot comes up with an idea like that, hand him a shovel. There is one name which isn't on that list, but I'm going to talk about him anyway. Not about his roles as a movie pilot, some of which were instantly forgettable, and not about his other roles as a cult hero of the screen in a score of classic films, but about his remarkable brush with aviation as a very young man. He was born in San Francisco back in 1930, and immediately was nicknamed Samson by the nurses who delivered him, as he weighed in at 11 pounds and 6 ounces. That's 5.2 kilos. He carried a mixed ancestry of English, Irish, Scottish and Dutch origins, and could trace his line back at least 12 generations to the Mayflower passenger, William Bradford. He wasn't a natural scholar, had to attend summer school to catch up on his studies, and his activities brought little praise and much disapproval. In 1945, he attended Piedmont High School for a while, but was asked to leave for writing an obscene suggestion on the athletic field scoreboard, which left one particular school official in no doubt as to his opinion of him. On top of other infractions, he also burned an effigy on the school lawn. His despairing parents found him a place at Oakland Technical High School, where he made better progress towards graduation. An old school friend joked that he thought Sampson, as I shall call him for now, graduated from the airplane shop. I think that was his major. Other friends recall that he didn't spend much time at school and was usually found having fun elsewhere. After he gave up full-time education, he drifted through a number of different jobs, including paper carrier, grocery clerk, forest firefighter, truck driver, golf caddy and lifeguard. He tried to get into Seattle University, but instead he was drafted into the United States Army during the Korean War. Samson wanted to get into combat, but instead found himself working as the lifeguard to the base pool at Fort Ord in California. He'd been sent there for his basic training, 
but when his superiors looked at his past experience, they thought him better suited to becoming a swimming instructor, and he remained at the base. At nights and on weekends, he also worked in the NCO club, apparently as a bouncer, a job not normally required on a military base, fully equipped with military police. Eventually, he got a little time off and was able to jump onto a military transport bound for Seattle, a common practice at the time, to spend a weekend with his parents and girlfriend. When it came time to return, Samson donned his uniform again, a requirement if he wanted to grab a ride back to Fort Ord, and headed to the military airfield. He looked around for an aircraft that he could climb into, but there was nothing going the right way. Nothing at all, except a pair of Douglas AD-1Q Sky Raiders, better known by those who flew them as spads. Our young lifesaver friend was desperate to get back to his base before his weekend pass ran out, and he was posted as AWOL absent without leave, a serious offence in time of war, but not particularly worrying for a swimming instructor. Regardless, Samson was keen not to get a black mark. He got chatting to the SPAD pilots, Richmond and his wingman, Anderson, and discovered quite by chance that the version of Sky Raider beside them had room for a second crew member. The two AD-1Qs were two-seat electronic countermeasure versions of the AD-1, a pair from only 35 of this version that were built. Since the two pilots had flown up to Seattle without their rear-seat crew members, they had room for a passenger. As an aside, although the Sky Raider was a single-engine piston fighter, it was a big aircraft and there were three-seaters built for roles such as radar-equipped airborne early warning and the night attack roles and even four-seat versions for night attack and radar countermeasures. Their concern, however, was that the Sky Raider wasn't really a passenger-carrying aircraft and it would probably be against their regulations if they took an extra body with them. Samson pleaded with them to take him on board. He had no alternative, and didn't want to get into trouble by getting back late. Anderson finally took pity on him, and they said that if he rode in the back and stayed quiet, he could fly with them, showing him the small door that opened into the dark, narrow interior of the fuselage, packed with electronic equipment and with just one small seat for him to perch on. With the door closed, there was a small oval window to look out of. Without a flying helmet, when the SPAD's mighty 18-cylinder right cyclone engine fired up, it would have been deafening, but I don't doubt that our intrepid soldier was mightily pleased to be heading back to Fort Ord before his pass ran out. Richmond and Anderson taxied their aircraft out, and soon the Navy Sky Raiders got airborne. Heading out in trail, Junior Lieutenant Anderson was a little confused as the controller cancelled Richmond's flight plan and informed the formation that they were flying on Anderson's plan. Regardless, they were cleared to fly 500 feet on top of the cloud. They climbed up through the scattered cumulus 
and joined up in formation, progressing towards the Amber One airway. As they approached Toledo, Anderson, with his passenger sitting in the cramped equipment area, lost radio communications. He passed the lead on to Richmond, who made the voice reports to Toledo. Then bad went to worse, as north of Eugene they were faced with towering clouds that they couldn't avoid, and entering them, Anderson lost sight of the other aircraft. On his own now, and without radio communications, Anderson proceeded south along the coast in an attempt, by dead reckoning, to rejoin the route Amber 1. In the back, without oxygen equipment, our intrepid soldier was feeling decidedly dizzy. The Sky Raiders had been cruising fairly high, and supplemental oxygen was needed to stay alive, but luckily, as he started to fall unconscious, Anderson was forced to descend as his own supply became exhausted. Now at 14,000 feet, there was just enough air pressure to survive, whilst his pilot did his best to return to the route he was supposed to be on. The details of the flight from this point have become lost in time, but for reasons not clearly identified, Anderson began to lose his engine. It's possible that a miscalculation of his fuel load led him to run out of gas, or he might have suffered an engine failure, but what is obvious is that the huge right cyclone lost its will to live and gave out, and the aircraft began to descend towards the ocean below. The weather had become poor with stormy conditions, and the outcome far from shore as the spad glided down into the heavy seas and strong winds. I feel for Junior Lieutenant Anderson, as after suffering a loss of radio, oxygen and now fuel, he'd been put into a terrible situation, but not nearly as bad as his unexpected passenger. In the back of this unfamiliar aircraft, Samson must have been wondering what on earth was going on. He had no communication with the pilot, and all had gone quiet. All he could see through his tiny porthole was the inside of dark clouds, and in breaks between patches of cloud and fog, the fast-approaching surface of an angry sea. The landing was as violent as you would expect as the Sky Raider ploughed into the waves of the Pacific Ocean and came to a halt. Our soldier fought to open the hatch that he had used to climb into his compartment, but the pressure of water outside was too great to overcome. The sea poured into the aircraft, filling up the airspace, until his head was under the surface, and drowning became a likely outcome when the pressure on the door lessened and he was able to force it open, coming to the surface spluttering and gasping for breath. He swam around to the front of the aircraft and found Anderson pulling a pair of one-man survival dinghies out of the cockpit. He pulled the toggles to inflate them and the two survivors clambered in. As they floated away, they watched the spad sink below the surface until nothing could be seen. It was getting dark and, along with a worsening sea state, fog was rolling in. Anderson had said that he thought they were only a few miles off the coast, but with a failed radio he hadn't been able to put out a distress call. 
They couldn't see the stars nor any sign of land. And then a big wave pitched Samson out of his dinghy into the rough water. The wind began to blow his small craft out of reach, and despite being a strong swimmer, he couldn't catch hold of it. Before long, he realised he was alone in the dark, surrounded by fog. He called out to the pilot, but there was no reply. They had become separated. With little alternative, he picked a direction and started swimming through the rough water. He was getting tired and cold, but he kept going for what seemed like hours. Little did he know it, but he had company. In the depths of the water below him off Point Rees, sharks spread and attacks were common. With his strength failing and despair hovering over him, things were looking pretty bad until, from out of the gloom and mist, a light appeared, a single point. His spirit soared and he struck out towards it, but it was a mile or more away, and when eventually he began to hear waves crashing onto the shore and feel sand beneath him, he could do little more than crawl onto the beach and lie there, exhausted and freezing cold. On the coast was the RCA radio receiving station, Kilo Papa Hotel. It was a remote spot for the men who maintained the facility, so to hear someone banging on their door in the night was a rare event. When they opened up, they found a bedraggled soldier, so cold and wet and exhausted that he couldn't speak. They dragged him in, wrapped him in a blanket and warmed a drink for him, although he shook so much he could barely hold it. When an ambulance arrived, they took him to the nearby Coast Guard station to reunite him with Anderson, his pilot, who had come ashore a mile or two along the coast. They had both survived. A few years later, when back at Fort Orr, our soldier was spotted by the director of a rawhide episode that was shooting at the base, and with his encouragement, the young man eventually forged a career in the movies. Being a great fan of spaghetti westerns, I, for one, am very grateful that he survived his ordeal, as without the talents of Clint Eastwood, a fistful of dollars, a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly would never have made it, let alone Kelly's Heroes, the Dirty Harry's series, and many more. He went on to become a fine director and would eventually use his talents to bring the story of the miracle on the Hudson, another aircraft that splashed down to our screens. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that fantastic podcast at airlinepilotguide.com. Plane Tales is also its uh, own podcast, and if you want to help us along, then we'd be very grateful if you'd give us a review, perhaps on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks.